Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Allie Gustafson, Sydney Campbell, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. It's good to be here. Thanks for having us. I guess I should mention uh, we connected to the two of you through uh, Allie, your dad, Gary. Uh, Gary and I work together. And he said, oh, you do a podcast. You should talk to my daughter. I'm like, oh, really? What does your daughter do? And so that's what the, uh, a lot of this uh, particular episode is going to be about. We're going to talk about uh, the American Bald Eagle Foundation. And you guys are going to teach me quite a bit. I have a feeling I'm one of those guys that doesn't know anything coming into many of these conversations. And so as a novice, I'll just ask questions like uh, every other person would that doesn't know much about uh, preservation and bald eagles and raptors in general. I do know that. I do know raptors are birds of prey. There you go. Is that right? That's a great start. Are, is, are, are multiple bald eagles uh, considered a, a kettle, or is that exclusive to hawks and falcons? Uh, there are a lot of different words that apply to a lot of different species. So multiple bald eagles are called a convocation. Um, kettle is used almost exclusively for vultures when they are behaving in a specific way. So a kettle of vultures is a group of vultures that is flying in a circle on a thermal. Um, I think they're called something, I think they're called a funeral when they're perching. Yeah. Um, yeah, owls are, there's a parliament of owls. Those are fun names. Convocation. Yeah, yeah. big and fancy sounding. Yes. It's, it's a weirdly specific I don't even know what to call that genre of words, yeah. the, the names that we use for groups of animals, but there are labels almost, yeah. like the way we label groups of birds in that way. There are a lot of them though. Mm -hmm. Well, cool. Let's get to uh, learn a little bit about you. Who wants to go first? A Allie or Sydney? I'll go first. <laughs> All right, Allie, you grew up in uh, Massachusetts? I did, yes. B born and raised, right? No, so I was born in Maine, um, uh, and then we moved out of Maine, and my parents, when I was about six, settled in Massachusetts, so most of my growing up was in Massachusetts, and then when I graduated high school, I went back to Maine and attended the University of Maine in Orono for four years as my undergrad. So, Allie, you've, have you known anything but cold climbs? <laughs> no. <laughs> I am not made for hot weather. Um, and when I was moving from Mass to Maine, everybody said, oh, I hope you like the cold. And then it happened again when I was moving from Maine to Alaska. Everybody said, man, I hope you like the cold. And the answer is yes, I do really like the cold. You, you I guess your next move is uh, Yukon. <laughs> yeah, you have to move further I mean, north. Antarctica <laughs> is like on my bucket list. I want to go there and it kind of makes sense. <laughs> Yeah, Antarctica, uh, I think the only way you can get there, I guess you can fly, but there's also this treacherous uh, ship that uh, I, I can't imagine taking that uh, boat ride. I Seems a little scary to me. Down, like South, South America, I think they leave, and mm -hmm. you can like cruise down to Antarctica. Yeah, I you, know you're traveling with my dog, and I just I haven't figured out how to get him yeah. down to Antarctica with me yet. You're using the term cruise. I, that that waterway or that water down there is very, very treacherous. <laughs> uh, it's not on my bucket list for that reason. <laughs> I mean, well, I'm not in Alaska. Yeah, it's not it's not a big leap, I guess. Very cool. So uh, how did you spend your time growing up? When, when you weren't in class and your parents weren't telling you you had to do something, how did you spend your free time? I was outside, always. Um, my... The house that I grew up in um, is on a dead end street and there's a wildlife management area that is in the woods behind my house. So I spent a lot of time out there. There's a trail that goes by swamps and it's forested. Um, it, there's a lot of like ridges in that area. It's very hilly. Um, so I was, you know, poking around rocks and things. There's a stream that I spent a lot of time by. And that, that, that was what I did. Um, I also played a lot of sports. So when I wasn't outside wandering around the woods, I was outside on a field playing soccer or lacrosse or whatever. Did you enjoy uh, playing uh, lacrosse and soccer more than being alone outside? Um, I, it was, I think they're both equitable. They're so different in that regard. Um, I think the team dynamic and I, is something I really enjoyed about the sports and also the games themselves. Um, 
lacrosse especially is such a fast growing game um, that it was really cool to be a part of it when I was in high school. And then it's also the sport that I continued playing in college. Uh, but it, it's so different being on the field with a team of girls that I'm really close with and then being outside in the forest by myself, picking up frogs and things. They're just two totally different experiences. So, so what is it about being outside in the forest uh, that appeals to you? Is it, is, it the, is it the wildlife out there or is it just being outside plus the wildlife? What is it? So the wildlife is a big part of it. Um, my degree from UMaine, my major was wildlife ecology, and I kind of got there from all of the adventuring that I did in my backyard. Um, it wasn't something that I was consciously doing when I was a kid, but like most of my summers were spent building mazes for toads in my sandbox, <laughs> which is an experience I didn't even connect until I was actively in my program at UMaine and realized that that was something that I used to do. Um, and then I was like learning about American toads in college. So it's a cool way to connect the dots. Um, and now like I take my dog out on walks and it's the same thing where just being outside and feeling really connected to the nature around me. I mean, Alaska is a lot different than Massachusetts in terms of terrain, but it's still the same feeling where I'm outside. I am very attuned to what is around me, the animals. Um, I particularly am a big fan of amphibians, so salamanders and toads. And those are really easy to find if you're just out walking in the woods. Not so much here in Alaska, we don't have a bunch of them, but in Massachusetts, especially just this summer, I was back home walking through the same forest, finding all of these little salamanders and newts and things because they're there. And it's really neat to know what you're looking for because if you don't know what you're looking for, you're gonna miss a whole other part of the world. What is it about amphibians that appeals to you? Uh, so my major is wildlife ecology. My minor at UMaine was in education. And besides just being a really neat group of animals, they're really great for teaching because one, they're pretty abundant in places that aren't Alaska um, and they're small. So they're very, you can find them and point them out to kids and kids can look at them and understand them a little bit better just because they're so small. You can really get up close to them. Whereas, you know, moose or bears are a lot harder to get up close to and look at in that regard. Um, so they make really interesting teaching tools also in New England. Um, vernal pools are a very specific type of habitat. Um, they're not ponds because they don't have fish. They show up in the spring and then they disappear over the course of the summer. So very specific species use those. And it's a very unique and kind of isolated ecosystem. Um, so as an educator, I have brought kids out to these vernal pools and we look for signs of, you know, fairy shrimp and spotted salamanders and wood frogs, things that you could find in those pools. And you can talk about what makes it a pool and not a pond and why it's different and what these animals are using that pool for. What is the difference between a pool and a pond? <laughs> so vernal pools, like I said, they show up in the springtime, vernal, right? Um, they fill uh, up so these with water from snow melt and Hey, Allie, assume I know nothing. <laughs> so vernal kind of means uh, seasonal. Um, so they show up in the spring from snow melt or rain. And then as the temperatures get warmer in the summer, that water is going to evaporate because there's no source. There's not a river or a stream or anything that's putting water into this pool. So in the fall, they just look like a depression in the dirt. There's no real evidence that water was even there unless you really are knowing what you're looking for. So because there's not water in these pools year round, fish can't survive in them, right? Because fish live in water all the time. They need it to survive. But amphibians that start as tadpoles and then metamorphosize or change shape into frogs or salamanders that only need to be in water part of the time, they can lay their eggs, which in a pond would be at risk of being eaten by fish. So they find this very unique ecosystem that can't support fish to lay their eggs to give their tadpoles and their eggs a higher chance of surviving until they've become frogs or toads or, or salamanders. That uh, That is fascinating. I had no idea there was a difference between pools and ponds. And I, I guess the simplest way to describe a pool is it cycles between being uh habitable by waterborne animals and and then uh, not being habitable for part of the year for those waterborne animals. Yeah, so that's, that's the vernal part is where 
they're only there seasonally, whereas a pond would be existing year round. So it would have fish in it. Fascinating. That's, that's, uh, that's fun stuff. All right, let's go to uh, Sydney. Sydney, you were born in Southern California and now you're in Haines, Alaska. That doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, I actually, I was born in North Carolina uh, and we moved to California when I was young. I would have been four, I think. Um, and I grew up in LA uh, and I didn't like it. I can't really explain to people why I didn't like it. I don't thrive in the heat. Uh, it's very crowded and I like trees and mountains. <laughs> um, it's interesting, like from, from Los Angeles, you can see the, uh, the um, you know, there's mountains around and you can see them really, really distantly. And I, I just, as a kid had this like longing, I would stare at the mountains and desperately wish that we could go be in the mountains. Um, but so we grew up in LA near San Diego, my uncle, lived and worked in San Diego. He's retired now, but he worked at the San Diego Zoo for basically my whole life. He was an elephant trainer. Um, so I grew up, I grew up going to San Diego often and seeing my uncle train these really giant, massive, incredible animals. Um, and I spent a lot of time at the zoo in general. Uh, my mom also in sort of a previous life before she had kids was a zookeeper as well. She kept primates. Um, so I sort of always knew that I, you know, I thought it was really interesting and I always knew that that was what I wanted to do, but I didn't really know how to go about it. Um, but I met a boy in San Diego and followed that boy to Alaska where he was born. He was born in Juneau, Alaska. Um, and I figured I'd go to college there. So I went to the University of Alaska Southeast. And while I was a student there, I got an internship here. Uh, a long time ago, more years than we need to talk about now, but um, I fell in love with raptors. I thought, you know, this is a really neat sort of subset of species that exist in the world in a really unique way. And I fell in love with the idea of training them. So, I, and it was a different time at this facility. Things were really different here and they, they weren't done the way I really wanted to do things, um, but it inspired me to learn more about keeping raptors and training raptors and training birds of prey. Um, so after I graduated from college, I spent a lot of time learning from other facilities. I moved briefly out of Alaska. I moved to Eugene, Oregon, where I volunteered at the Cascades Raptor Center, which is a really incredible facility. Um, and I learned a lot. So when the time came that there was a job open here, I was prepared to move back and, and take it. Uh, I, I assume you, you're not with that uh, young man anymore that you followed to Alaska. No, nah, I ditched the boy, kept the state. I think it's probably a, the, the better trade. You, you, it was you won definitely on that one, I'm guessing. I have said for a long time that Alaska is the love of my life. Did you know that before you went up there? I didn't. I knew it the day I arrived. How many students? Yeah, I, I can imagine. The pictures are amazing. I was telling you guys earlier, I've never been there, but I, I de definitely want to uh, visit a couple of times before I die. Uh, so University of Alaska Southeast, how many students are we talking about? Uh, I, you know, I'm not sure, probably not too terribly many. I am, uh, from when I did my undergrad, I have this vague memory of the number being somewhere between four and 5,000. Um, and I'm actually a student at the University of Alaska. Again, I'm getting my master's in public administration. So, and it's an even smaller program. Most of my classes, both of my classes this semester were like seven students. P public admin and the job you have now, how do they relate? Well, the American Bald Eagle Foundation is a nonprofit. Um, and most Raptor centers, lots of small facilities around the country are nonprofits. And a surprising amount of what we do and what I do in particular is not just training birds, it's managing a team and managing a small business. Specifically, like working within a nonprofit is, you know, unique among small business management. So there are skills that I have found myself wanting here and not had. So back to school I went. All right, right on. Uh, and Allie, how big is uh, University of Maine? It's it's pretty big. Um, 
I think my graduating class had something around three or 4,000 people. And that was just my graduating class. Um, so the school itself is pretty large. It's the largest of the UMaine schools. All right. What are the uh, mascots for both of your schools? We're the black bears. Uh, we're, a, we're Spike the humpback whale. <laughs> what, what, what's the story? I get black bears for UMaine. What, what's the story behind Alaska's mascot? Well, so there are three University of Alaska campuses. And so University of Alaska Anchorage is the sea wolves, they're sea lions. Um, University of Alaska Fairbanks is a polar bear and University of Alaska Southeast where I go is a humpback whale. And there's a huge population of humpback whales in this area. And they're also, they're semi-migratory, not all of them migrate, but they migrate between here and Hawaii. Um, but they're a huge part of the tourist industry and they're a huge part of the ecosystem. So it makes sense. And so your primary humpback whale is Spike. Yes, he. our mascot has a name, and I don't know why he's named Spike. It's intriguing, if nothing else. We, we may never I, know. We, I mean, I, I wouldn't even know how to go about researching it. Yeah, it, it, I love the fact that it, you probably can't figure it out through Googling. <laughs> no. All right, so you both love Alaska. You, you both mentioned uh, before we started recording that you're you, – you're, you're going to stay there for a while indefinitely, it sounds like, for both of you. Uh, what is it about Alaska in, in more detail than we've talked about? That's a big question. A big question. I think for me, there are a couple things. Um, first, and this kind of, I think, uh, is related to the reason I work with raptors as well, is that it's incredibly unique. It's one of the last places in this country that is truly wild. And it's certainly not untouched. You know, there's a lot of like colonial impacts on it, but it remains, you know, it looks untouched in a lot of ways. Um, and it's, you know, it's always a conversation starter. Anytime I travel out of Alaska and tell people where I'm from, they're like, oh my God, tell me about that. That's strange. Um, and I've always enjoyed, you know, having I don't know, approaching life differently. But I, I think the biggest thing for me is that there is so much access to the outdoors and there, I mean, you you almost can't get jaded here. The mountains are so breathtaking every single time you see them. The wildlife is so breathtaking every time you encounter it that you don't have the opportunity to ever get bored or complacent. Um, and I've, I've always been about kind of tricking myself into being <laughs> productive or, you know, excited or engaged. So Alaska is like constantly falling into this trap of, well, I'm having a good time and I wasn't even trying. <laughs> I'd like to ditto everything Sydney said because <laughs> she, she really hit the nail on the head. Um, I think for me, when I moved out here, I, Alaska changed the way that I took up space in the world. Um, everything here is, like Sydney said, so breathtaking and magnificent. And I kind of had this realization that, you know, whatever cosmic forces put together the mountains and the rivers and the moose and the trees and everything also put me on this planet too, um, which is kind of a, an existential thing that I had happen to me while I was hanging out on the river one afternoon. But, but it really, I took up space in such a different way once I got here than I did beforehand when I was, you know, one of 12,000 people on the UMaine campus. And then I got here to this small town and and everything here was so important. It was, we're important to the ecosystem and the ecosystem is important. And, and also just the connection to the culture. So we have um, a, a village of Clinket people, which is the First Nation um, people that live in our area. And they're so immersed in our community, um, which is something that back in New England is a little bit more further removed. Um, so getting to hear their experiences and the way that they care for the valley that we live in uh, really helped me change the way that I was taking up space in this world too. Those are fantastic answers. Uh, yeah, what you guys think about on a day-to-day -day or even hour-to-hour -hour basis, uh, I, I probably don't contemplate much of what you guys are uh, 
doing on, a, on an hourly or daily basis. Uh, and, and I'm actually uh, quite jealous uh, of the freedom. It sounds like you, you, the two of you are enjoying out there. I think it's, it, there is quite a lot of freedom. Um, and I think there's also a lot of meaning to me. You know, I, I always felt when I lived in Southern California that I was just kind of going through the motions. Like you get a job so that you can pay the rent, so that you can pay for gas, so that you can drive your car to your job. And you're, you know, you're just a number on a sheet. You're just like a blank face in a crowd. Um, and I've never liked feeling like that. And I, I feel a lot more I think individual here and I feel a lot more intentional. Like I'm here on purpose and I'm doing this job on purpose. That's one of my favorite quotes is Dolly Parton told me, she said, figure out who you are and do it on purpose. And I came to Alaska and I heard Dolly in my head and I was like, oh, this is it. I'm going to do this on purpose. So wait, wait a minute. Dolly Parton told you individually that? Well, no. But Dolly Parton famously said, figure oh, out got who it, you got it. do it on I purpose. And that really spoke to me. And I, I know that if I met Dolly in person, she would say that. She would say it to yeah. me, for sure. God, I, I didn't know if you were distantly related to Dolly <laughs> or, not, or not. I wish. Yeah, I did not see a Dolly Parton quote coming. <laughs> yeah, surprise. All right, so let's talk about uh, the American Bald Eagle Foundation. What are the objectives of the foundation? So our mission is very specifically um, preserving the bald eagle and its habitat through education and stewardship. Um, and we do that in a variety of ways. So first we have a beautiful natural history museum with a large diorama room with a collection of specimens from the area. So guests can come in and they can see every kind of wildlife that they could possibly see in this area um, without having to actually go look for it outside. And many of these specimens that we have, like wolverines or wolves, aren't things that you would like casually come across, you would really have to go looking in remote areas for it. So it's a cool education tool that we get to talk to guests about these animals that exist in this space, but they might not necessarily just come across on their own. Um, we also have our raptor center, which houses 10 live raptors. Um, would you like to talk more about our raptor center and what we do there? Yeah. Um, so these are these are live birds who live and work on display. Um, and I think that they're kind of a really special part of what we do because our philosophy is sort of, um, well, it's changed, I think, over the years, but our philosophy is certainly moving towards letting the animals speak for themselves. Um, so the way we go about training is a little different than you'll sometimes see in smaller facilities or smaller raptor centers. Um, we're really big on giving birds choices. We want the birds to choose to come interact with us. We want them to choose to interact with their audience or their environment. Um, and it gives us the opportunity to highlight just how individual they are. We have, in some cases, multiple birds of the same species. So we have three bald eagles and they are all very, very different ladies. Um, and it gives our audience an opportunity to see not just an animal, but a person, um, an individual who's, who's, thinking and making choices and and engaging in a way that is unique to them. And what we've found and what, you know, countless studies, I mean, the science has been in on this for a long time, but what we find is that audiences connect better and make better choices from a conservation perspective if they are inspired and moved and engaged by the individuals they meet. So yeah, we're really passionate about doing it in a way that highlights our individuals and their particular skills. So, so bald eagles are the headliners, but it's really about wildlife uh, found in, in that part of Alaska. Right. And that's, um, I think that's an important part of our mission. You know, our, our mission is the preservation of the bald eagle and its habitat. Um, and habitat really encompasses a lot. You know, an ecosystem is not a static thing and a habitat is not just a, a space. It's a space that is occupied by any number of different organisms, plants and animals and inverts and detritivores. Um, and they're all inter interacting in a way that maintains the space. Um, like salmon are a really good example here in Southeast mm -hmm. Alaska. We are located in a place where we're in Haines specifically because our river, has this really unique hydrogeology that keeps the river from freezing as early as other places do. So for example, right now, kind of everywhere in our general area, 
the rivers will be frozen, except for the Chilkat, which is the river that we're situated on, which means that the salmon that are running right now are accessible to wildlife. So there are salmon running in other rivers, but they're under the ice. They can't get them. They can't get to them to eat. So we have, I mean, we have thousands of bald eagles out on the river right now because the salmon keep returning and the salmon feed not just the bald eagles, but the bears and the wolves and the ravens and the magpies. Um, so bald eagles, of course, are our, are our center focus, but a lot more goes into keeping the bald eagles alive. Thousands of bald eagles in, in what kind of uh, space are we talking? It's like a five mile stretch of the yeah. river. So I, I probably in my life have averaged seeing one bald eagle in the wild, maybe every two or three years. And you're telling me thousands of bald eagles in five miles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Haynes is famous for that. Haynes yes. is, is the bald eagle capital of, I'm not 100% confident saying the world, but definitely this country. Yeah. There's one other spot similar to ours in Canada. Um, I can't remember exactly where it is off the top of my head, but they also have a very similar large congregation of eagles. So maybe not the world, but definitely the United States. Well, that's why in, I made in our spoken here. I, I said that Alaska doesn't let you get jaded about anything, but it does kind of let you get jaded about bald eagles because boy, howdy, have we got them here. <laughs> you, you, yeah, I don't, I don't think you're jaded about that. <laughs> hey, so so uh, you mentioned three female bald eagles. Uh, is there a reason there are no males or it just happens that you have three females? It just happened that way. Um, so we acquire birds kind of through a, an interesting network. Um, essentially, a lot of the birds on our team have previously been injured in the wild and they were treated at rehabilitation facilities. Um, and in the case of our bald eagles, our, they were treated for injuries that they sustained in the wild and they were not rehabilitated to the point that they could be released successfully. Um, they have some disability or another that prevents them from successfully surviving in the wild. So they were evaluated for their personality and for their sort of disposition. Um, and when we determined that they could be successful in this setting, then they were placed with us. So it just so happened that all three of ours are bald eagles, but we have had males here in the past. I, I didn't know if uh, males were more aggressive or more problematic for various reasons. Sounds like it's not. No, I, and it's, it's, it's really one again, again, one of those more individual things, you know, um, an animal who is aggressive is typically telling you that it doesn't want you in its space. Um, an animal that's problematic, whatever that translates to, um, probably isn't a good fit for this type of education work. Fair enough. Living All right. So go ahead. Alex, living sorry. with humans isn't what these animals are designed for. Like their job is really hard. So not every bird is fit for this lifestyle. Makes sense. All right. So if you go back, uh, over 200 years ago in our nation's history, there was a debate about whether we should uh, have the Ameri the bald eagle become the national bird, or I think Ben Franklin wanted the uh, the turkey. Right. Uh, I, I think I think the, the right decision was was reached. Um, what is it about the American bald eagle that uh, Americans should be fascinated and endeared by? I have an answer for this. Do you do you have an answer for this? I, I don't think I have an answer for this yet. <laughs> Let me think on it. Uh, so I think, so the, the criticism against bald eagles is that they're thieves, they're pirates, and they are. Uh, bald eagles are what are known as uh, kleptoparasites. They're scavengers. So they steal food from other animals in the wild. That's what they're skilled at. Um, and they're scavengers and people think, oh, that makes them nasty and not noble. The Ben Franklin's argument, I think, was that Tom turkeys like help raise their young so they're good fathers or they're noble or something like that. Um, I kind of approach it a little differently. I think bald eagles are really scrappy and I think that they are survivors um, and their conservation history certainly is a great example of that. This bird was endangered and on the brink of extinction, you know, what, 70 years ago at this point? Mm -hmm. um, and when we, I think they're a symbol of our resilience as a nation when we decide to work together as a team to change something. Uh, what we changed was legislation about the use of the chemical DDT and what we achieved was a population that's now totally thriving. Um, 
and bald eagles, you know, they, they survived in part because they're really scrappy, really adaptable animals who can, uh, you know, who can continue to thrive in a really, really rapidly changing world. That's what I think is best about them. That sounds yeah, well, good. I'll, I'll think thriving and uh, scrappy. I won't think uh, parasite and uh, stealing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and they're they're so when I've seen uh, bald eagles in the wild, they appear to be large birds, but they're actually so much bigger than most people assume they are. What are the dimensions of a bald eagle? So their wingspan is between five and six feet. Um, but it, their size depends on where you find them. So like Sydney said, they're pretty scrappy. They can thrive in a lot of environments. So we see them here in Alaska, but you can also find bald eagles in Florida. Um, they're mm. found all across the country and their size is really dependent on where they're living. Um, here in Alaska, our eagles uh, can weigh up to 14 pounds because they need that weight to help them keep warm. Whereas in Florida, a smaller eagle might weigh eight pounds which is almost half the size of one you might find in Alaska because Florida is warm and they don't need to hang on to that weight. Okay, cool. All right. So for the casual person that is listening to this, what, what do you, does your foundation want them to know? Well, I think what we want them to know is that their behavior can and does impact the environment around them. And there are simple things that we can all be aware of that will contribute really intensely to the preservation of not just bald eagles, but all raptors in their area. Um, I think a really good example is the rodenticide poisoning, right? Mm -hmm. or, yeah. or even, at, well, let's stick with rodenticide poisoning. So rodenticides are the poisons that you put out for like mice or rats, right? Because um, nobody likes having mice or rats in their house. But if you use rodenticide poison, that mouse doesn't die right away. It eats some and then it goes outside where it becomes a really good meal for like a barn owl or a red-tailed hawk. And when you eat a poisoned mouse, you are poisoned yourself. Um, and not only does that kill that particular barn owl or that red-tailed hawk, it means that there's now not a predator in the area. And prey species like mice are built to re to reproduce really quickly that's like that's their whole survival strategy so when there isn't a predator in the area they boom and all of a sudden instead of having like a mouse problem you now have a mouse infestation because you accidentally killed your predator so really simple changes like not using rodenticide poisons makes a big difference in a, an ecosystem sense in a personal sense and in a like an individual life of that bird sense yeah, it, it, having uh, a mouse or, or a couple of mice in your house, like who cares? They're not, not actually causing harm, right? I don't think. I mean, I think it's valid to not want rodents in your house because sometimes like you, you get mouse poop in like your flower bag or something and that's annoying. But I think there are, there are steps that you can take that are not a detriment to your to the environment around you. And that's what we want to encourage people to to think about is how is my behavior going to impact the life of the animals around me? So live traps are a great option if you have mice um, and then figuring out how they're getting inside your house and exclusion. Yes, keeping them out. Got it, okay, cool. All right, so if I come to Alaska, where should I go? Well, I, I mean, I'm very partial to Southeast. Southeast mm -hmm. Alaska, if you like, if this is the state of Alaska, where's the camera? If this is the state of Alaska, we're right around here. And this whole area right here is all like beautiful islands and mountains that just shoot up out of the water and deep fjords and mm -hmm. incredible wildlife. That's, I yeah. mean, I'm partial to it because I live here. <laughs> Southeast but. for sure. Um, also, I love the national parks. I think they're super cool. Sydney recently went to Denali National Park and I'm super jealous because I have not gotten there yet, um, but that's up in Anchorage, which in Alaska is more up in the interior. Um, and I, it's the same thing that Sydney said incredible. about Southeast. It's just incredible. So I, I have a lot to explore here. So if I, if I travel by water south from Haines, am I taking a, what am I taking? A car ferry, uh, a pedestrian ferry? It's both. Yeah, it's it both. It functions as both. Um, and if you travel south from Haines, you end up in Juneau, which is the state capital. It's like 40,000 people. Super beautiful little city. And Denali, uh, is it so breathtaking that a place like Yellowstone would be boring? 
I haven't been to Yellowstone. I also haven't been to Yellowstone. I think they're different. Um, that's what I've learned through my travels is that you can go not very far and find very different habitats and places. So I think comparing the two would just be a disservice to both parks because they're so unique um, and probably worth going to both. Yeah, I, I'm asking I'm that question. Go ahead. My experience in Denali was, I, I didn't expect to be impressed by the mountain, but this is the tallest peak in North America. And it for sure is. It's it. My experience with that mountain was that it's kind of like the moon. You know, sometimes the moon is out really big and it's like the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. And you try to take a picture of it and it's this tiny little speck on your phone. Um, so I, I don't think you can appreciate Denali through photographs. I think experiencing it in person is something like it's, I don't know how to describe it. It was overwhelming. Um, and that park is unique because it's it's a wilderness area. There's no hunting on the, and it's massive. I mean, it is just like millions of acres. So there's there's all these animals, these species that you really can't see anywhere else or don't often see anywhere else that are behaving just as they would in the wild because they aren't afraid of you. Um, so certainly it takes, you know, you have to be careful and conscientious, but I mean, I, I probably cried every day I was in Denali. <laughs> it was just so incredible. Took your breath away every day, I imagine. Every time. Yeah, I, I asked the comparison question between Denali and Yellowstone having not been to either place. Uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, uh, before we uh, joined this broadcast, I uh, was putting together a puzzle because I really enjoy puzzles and it was a puzzle of the national parks. And so oh, cool. I, I I would love to go to Denali someday. So I think when I do go to Alaska for, for the first time, Denali is probably part of the trip. Yeah, yeah. I highly recommend it. It's incredible. And then, so there is a lottery system that you can, um, that you can uh, participate in. It's open to really anyone around the country. Um, and they pull tickets, I think in June for a cup for a weekend in September, where you have the opportunity to drive the park road. So mm. the park road is like 90 miles and it's only the first few miles are open to um, individual traffic. The rest is tour buses. Um, but you can win the lottery to drive the entire 90 miles, which is sounds incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, why not enter? Right. Might as well give it a, sh yeah, a shot. All right. So a typical day where I live, I imagine is not uh, typical, uh, in Haynes. So can you guys walk me through, uh, I don't know, a day or a week, whatever makes sense to you. I imagine, uh, like food choices for you guys and you guys may be intermittent fasters. I, I don't know, but I eat, I eat two meals a day, lunch and dinner. Uh, and it's pretty boring how I get my food. And you probably, you guys in Alaska would probably think I'm not being, uh, uh, true to myself the way I eat, but talk to me about food plus just general lifestyle, uh, choices you make in Alaska on a daily basis. Cause it's, they're available to you or in some cases not available to you. Uh, cause I imagine you don't have all of what I think, uh, lower 48 folks would call, um, amenities? Well, we have two grocery stores in town um, and they are supplied via a barge that comes in every Tuesday. So if you go grocery shopping on Monday, there is not a lot of things on the shelves because the barge has not come in for that week yet. Um, we don't have fast food. We have very few restaurants and most of those few restaurants are only open in the summer because we are most of our tourism is supplied through the cruise ships that come in in the summer. Um, so many businesses will just shut down for the winter because there's nobody else here. Uh, so we do a lot of eating in and cooking for ourselves. That's a skill really that I have learned since moving out here is how to cook for myself because there aren't any other options. Yeah. And there is quite a lot of local food available, which is Mm -hmm. always exciting. Uh, I'm not personally somebody who goes out and gets a lot of my own food, uh, but my partner does go fishing. Um, he's caught us a couple fish that we turned into fish tacos this year, which was nice. Um, but there are, there is a, a small like local food store where we can get local seafood. Mm -hmm. We have obviously a lot of salmon, but there's also crab and shrimp and I don't know, other stuff that comes in. Um, and we do have local farms that produce really well in the summer. We have, you know, because the sun is so intense here in the summer and our days are so long, we have a very condensed but intense growing season. So 
it's really nice in the summer and it's it's a little tough in the winter, I guess. <laughs> yes. And when you say crabs, I'm from the mid-Atlantic area on the East Coast. I little, little blue crabs, maybe five or six inches across. You're talking about king crabs. Mm -hmm. We have king and we have dungeness and I think we also have snow crabs. Yeah. yeah. We have a lot of crabs yeah, around. Lots of crabs. And they're big. They're, 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 they're big, big and they're, <laughs> they're quite tasty too, though. Oh, yes. Yeah, they're really good. Mm -hmm. All right. So when you say uh, you have two grocery stores in town, are they ginormous corporate looking grocery stores? I know they're not. I'm, I'm kind of leading the question. <laughs> but you guys are accustomed to giant corporate grocery stores, right? Where you grew up. How are the grocery stores in Haynes different? They're small. Um, they're owned by local families. Um, they're limited. There are some things, you know, like specialty items that you can't really find. I, I can't, I'm struggling to think of any like examples, but I don't know. I was looking for star anise recently and mm -hmm. there isn't any in the <laughs> grocery store because who in Haynes needs that? Just us. Yeah. So, so no, no fast food. I hope that means also no Walmart. No nope. Walmart. Nope. The closest no. movie theater to us driving distance is in Whitehorse, Canada. So you do have to cross the border. Um, in Haines, we're about 40 miles from the border station and the border has been closed since the pandemic happened. So the only other way to get to a movie theater is to take a trip down to Juneau, which is either by ferry or by plane. So you, you guys are getting ready like we are here, dead of winter, but that means something very different in Alaska. How many, uh, how many hours of sunlight do you get in the dead of winter? Well, we just hit the shortest night. The solstice mm -hmm. was last week, uh, and we had six hours of daylight then. Um, so not as bad as you get up further north in the rest of Alaska. It's pretty, it's pretty reasonable. I think it's manageable down here. Um, but we're on the upswing now. The days are now slowly getting longer. So, I mean, look, season, I, think, I think it's called seasonal affective <laughs> disorder. Am I saying yeah. that correctly? Yeah. Uh, that people suffer from that uh, where, I'm, where I live. And obviously, we're getting more daylight here than you guys are getting there. Obviously, you guys are not affected by that at all. You couldn't be. You couldn't stay there if you were. I, I think that... Part of living in Alaska for me has been appreciating the seasons and the seasonality of things and making accommodations for myself based on those seasons. So like in the summer, we're incredibly productive at work. Mm -hmm. We get a lot done. We work really long hours. We work really, really hard in the winter. We still get what we need to get done but we take it a lot easier on ourselves and I take it a lot easier on myself personally at home. Like it's okay if in the dead of winter, all I really want to do is eat a lot of calories and sit on my couch because that's what our bodies were kind of built to do in this environment. Makes sense. Can both of you walk me through a typical day in, in the dead of winter? In the dead of winter. So in the dead of winter, our work hours are shorter because there's less daylight and a majority of our job is being outside. So it's hard to be outside when it's dark. Um, so we start our day at 9am. Um, I think personally, we each have different, different ways we start our day. I'm a eat breakfast every day kind of person. Sydney is not. <laughs> so for me personally, like I get up an hour or so before I have to go to work, I take care of my dog, things like that. Um, when we get into work, the first thing that has to happen is food prep for all of the birds. We have a wonderful intern who does that. That's how she starts her day. Um, and then we pitch in here and there to help out with that. Um, I run our social media. So that's a first, first uh, step of the day kind of thing that happens. Um, and then we train birds the rest of the day. Um, if there are any other projects that have to happen at work those happen. Um, but like Sydney said, in the winter, we aren't doing a ton of projects like that. Um, we go see all of the birds and then our workday is done at three um, because that's when the sun sets. So we go home at three. There's usually a little bit of dusky time before it actually gets dark in which I take my dog out so that he can run around, not in the dark. And then we go home and we watch a lot of movies. Um, we cook a lot of food, like Sydney said. Cooking is a pastime. It's a way to spend your time that is semi-productive and gives you a good result. 
and then we go to sleep and start all over the next day. Yeah. So when, when you say watch movies, are you, are you talking about like a, uh, a DVDs kind of thing, or are you talking about HBO? What are we talking about? We do have good enough internet here that we do a fair amount of streaming. Uh, and yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of movies and a lot of TV shows consumed in mm -hmm. the winter here. I think gotcha. I also do, I do, we both do a lot of reading. Yes. As well. Lots of reading happens as well. I was going to say, I see uh, shelves with uh, binders <laughs> behind you. Yeah. That's lots of, that's data on birds. We keep a lot of data on the birds. So when I said 7 PM, when I threw that time out, you're like, yeah, that's perfect. Now I, I perfectly understand why. Yep. yep. That's, uh, I, I don't know if I could deal with six hours of daylight. I don't know what I would do. I guess you have to get really you creative. Find you find ways to fill the time. Um, our dogs learn a lot of tricks in the winter because they need things to do too. Um, and we are professional animal trainers. So we fill our free time with still training animals. <laughs> I think the other thing that sometimes people don't consider about living in Alaska is that we also get 18 hours of sunlight in the summer and you get tired. Mm -hmm. um, you know, summer lasts long enough that by the end of it, you kind of think like, man, it would be really nice if the sun would set right now. Like it would be okay if I just got to sit on my couch for a while. So there's, there's a balance to it. You're so active and outdoors all the time in the summer that when fall kind of rolls around, you get excited about it. Yeah. Is it hard to sleep in the summer? I don't struggle with it, but I, we also like, there are blackout curtains if you need mm -hmm. them. Um, light hasn't really been anything that, that affects my sleep. No. Personally. I think college prepared me for this because yeah. I took a lot of naps in college in which it was light out and I was sleeping. Yep. So when I got here in the summer and it was still light out, but actually a reasonable time to be going to bed for the night, I didn't have any problem with it. Very cool. So you said you had 10 birds, three eagles. What are the other seven? Two red-tailed hawks. Uh, we have an eastern screech owl, a northern hawk owl, and a Eurasian eagle owl. And then we have a peregrine falcon and a lanner hybrid falcon. So she's a lanner saker hybrid. Eurasian eagle owl. Tell me about that bird. That's my boy Hans. <laughs> so that's Hans. Um, and Hans has lived with humans his entire life, um, which is kind of unique to the rest of our collection. Um, because like Cindy had said earlier, many of our birds do have disabilities from their time in the wild, but not for Hans. For him, his disability is that he's never lived in the wild. So he is a fantastic ambassador because he's not afraid of humans um, and he can showcase so clearly the way the owls operate. Um, he is right now the only bird that we are flying free flight for our show during our programming season. Um, and he does flights over people's heads. He'll do flights between people's arms. Um, and he is a rock star. He is so good at his job. I, I won't tell the other birds. Do you have favorites? I hear it. I think it changes. Uh, I so I am very close with our peregrine falcon. He, like Hans, was bred for this work. So he was born in human care. He was raised by humans. It has made him. I won't call him affectionate, but it has made him really comfortable being close with people. Um, and he arrived at this facility maybe six months before I started working here. So I've been with him basically his whole life. Um, and as a result, we have a really strong relationship uh, that translates into really solid programming. Um, and it's just a really enjoyable experience for me. So he's kind of, <laughs> he's my boy. And the first, besides Hans, Hans was who I started with when I got here as an intern. But after Hans, the first bird that I worked with was one of our red-tailed hawks. And I have been very consistently working with her for the last two and a half years. So she, though she is not comfortable with humans in the same way that our peregrine falcon is, she does show comfort behaviors around me more frequently than other people because I have spent that time working with her and building that relationship. And that trust and relationship is very important to the work we do with all of the birds. So for me, because I've been working with her the longest, we have that really special trust account. 
She once laid an egg in front of Allie. <laughs> she did, yes. <laughs> Quite that does not happen frequently. It's a very vulnerable thing. <laughs> uh, are, are some of the birds like puppies, like uh, still being trained and, and still a little rambunctious, or are they all fairly well trained at this point? Training is an ongoing dialogue. Um, that's that's a question we get kind of regularly. People ask, so when are you done training? And the answer kind of just like dogs is you're never done training an animal. Um, you know, the behaviors that they do have that we consider fluent, so their strongest behaviors still need maintenance. They train those behaviors every day. So for example, every single bird on our team gets on the scale first thing in the morning. We weigh them so that we know that they're staying healthy and so that we can prepare their diet according to that. Um, most, if not all of our birds have a crate behavior. So they, they step voluntarily into a crate when we ask them to. Um, and that's something that takes maintenance over time. Um, all of their program behaviors are maintained um, and we're always building new behaviors. The bigger their repertoire of behaviors, the more we have to fall back on to build their confidence when they're learning new things. Um, and to keep their brains engaged and stimulated. You mentioned you both have dogs, multiple dogs each or one or two dogs? Uh, I have a dog and, and my partner who lives with me also has a dog. So I sort of have two dogs. I only have one dog. <laughs> uh, what, what kind of dogs are they? I have a purebred Siberian Husky, which is why I only have one dog because <laughs> he is a handful. <laughs> a handful and a half. How old and what's his, his or her name? His name is Dirigo, um, and he is a year and a half old. Uh, I have to ask Dirigo. Why Dirigo? <laughs> Dirigo, so it's spelled D-I-R-I-G-O, and it is Latin for I lead or I direct, and it is the motto for the state of Maine. So when I ah. got him in the middle of the pandemic, I was missing home and wanted a name for my dog that kind of related to where I was from, and Dirigo fits him absolutely perfectly. He is such a leader that it yep. drives me crazy sometimes. <laughs> um, but appropriate name. Yes. I have an almost four-year-old uh, Alaskan Husky Mutt. We actually just did his DNA and found that he is most, he's, uh, he's like equal parts golden retriever, Alaskan Malamute, and Bernie's Mountain Dog. Um, his name is Eider, which is a type of duck. Um, and then my partner has a, a golden retriever Australian shepherd mix named Delta, which is an unfortunate name to have right now. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, Delta Eider and uh, I'm Dirigo. I imagine, three, I imagine all three are gorgeous animals. They're beautiful boys mm -hmm. and they're best friends. They spend yes. a lot of time together. That's that's uh, that's awesome. I have two. Uh, much as well, but they're uh, not nearly as well behaved as I imagine yours are because you guys know what you're doing when it comes to training and my family has no clue. Uh, you'd mentioned the pandemic. Can you guys describe what it was like uh, going through the pandemic in Alaska and, and doing what you do? Well, it was, it was weird being so removed from the lower 48. So at that point in time, I was still an intern here. Um, and when I was hired for my internship here, I was hired for four months. I was supposed to be here May to September. There were six of us. And then myself and one other intern were asked to stay through the fall. And then out of the two of us, I was asked to stay until the new interns would come in in May. So I was two months out from leaving. I was applying to new jobs. We had hired interns to come in and replace me. And then everything shut down and we canceled our internship here. And Sydney very kindly asked me to stay for another year. Very desperately asked <laughs> you to stay for another year. Uh, so we still had to come into work, right? Birds still have to eat. We work on holidays. We work on weekends. Um, the birds don't know that a pandemic is happening. So it was weird for a little while where we were taking separate turns inside the building, which was also weird because at that point, a majority of us lived in the building. <laughs> so it was very much, you know, staying away from each other, making sure that all the birds got fed. Um, and then eventually we did have access to vaccines a lot sooner than a lot of people hmm. in the lower 48. So um, we all were able to get vaccinated pretty early on and then come back to work at first just us and then very slowly 
open up to the public again. Yeah, but this is, we did have two row, two years in a row now, we have not had a very significant cruise ship season, um, which is hard for, I mean, we're a small nonprofit and we're largely admissions based. We, we Our bread and butter is people paying to come in and, and see our educational programs. And we haven't had that for two years. So there's been quite a great deal of, of grant money that we're really grateful for, but we're really hoping that the people come back next year safely so that we can do our jobs again. Cause that's, I think that's the fun part of our job is, is engaging with the public and, and watching the light come on over everybody's mm -hmm. head and watching them interact with species they wouldn't normally have access to. I'm curious, you mentioned uh, cruise ships. Are people stumbling into uh, what you guys do or do they come there with the intent of visiting uh, your foundation? Or is it a mix of the two? I think it's a blend of both. Um, we do have people who who plan their excursions meticulously. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they book tours through our local guiding companies that may include a visit to our facility. But we are right on the highway. We're right on the main drag, maybe a block and a half or maybe two blocks from the cruise ship dock itself. So people have to walk past us to get into town. Um, and we, we draw the eye. Yeah. <laughs> we, we're noticeable. Um, and I think that people are... It's a very small town, so there's not a ton to do mm -hmm. here. So when people Google like what to do in Haines, Alaska, we definitely pop up. Why and I is think it our are, are usually the the people who walk in unexpected unexpectedly are the people who have the best time here. Mm -hmm. Why is your location so noticeable besides being so close to the, the dock? So we do have two totem poles out front. We're a very large brown building um, because our museum is housed inside. So we have a big space for that. We've got two totem poles outside and a big sign that says the American Bald Eagle Foundation. And then we have a fence around our outdoor aviaries. And a few years ago, we had the community come in and we fed them ice cream and they painted a beautiful little mural on our fence um, that is bright blue and it has uh, humpback whales and moose and things like that on it. So it really draws the eye. And then occasionally people will be walking by while we're working with Hans, our Eurasian eagle owl, outside during a free flight program. And they will just see him pop over the fence as he flies up to a perch in our weathering yard. Um, and that definitely has brought people in before as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, the pandemic, is, it sounds like it's still affecting you guys. Is that, uh, it, that's not a government regulation thing. That's just a people aren't willing to uh, go out and about like they were before the pandemic. Yeah, I think it's just it's a matter of the safety of travel. And there are some, I think, regulations that are still impacting cruises. Um, I heard just today that three cruises have been turned around from their ports because of positive Omicron cases on board. Many, many positive cases. So we're definitely anxiously watching the way things are progressing again, because if this impacts the next cruise ship season, I think there will be fewer protections in place for us that, you know, the money is kind of slowly waning that the, the support money that's been coming from the feds in the state. So we're really hoping that this next season doesn't do us dirty again. <laughs> yeah. I, I hope they don't do you dirty and I hope they don't do the, uh, the world dirty. Um, they, they being uh, the, the virus as it spreads uh, or, or hopefully doesn't spread. Um, yeah. So, I, we typically ask a question uh, towards the end of each recording that has nothing to do with anything we've just talked about, other right. than it, it's still focused on the two of you. So we can we can go uh, in order. Like Sydney, you can fully answer what I'm about to ask, and then Allie, you can go, or we can piecemeal it, and you'll you'll understand what I mean by that here in a second. So you're individually going to anchor your own uh, talk show. Could be a daytime show, could be a late night show, but it's your show. It's guest oriented. You get to bring three guests on: one female, one male, and a musical group or or a musical uh, soloist. You guys want to go one guest at a time? We can start with female each or or male each, and then go from there. Okay, I'm gonna. I think this is a this is a this is an interesting one for me because uh -huh. there are so many interesting people in yeah. the world, and I want to be. You, I mean, you, I you know can my take your, you, Okay, you can take your time. Bye, 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 
by the way, this can be for your entertainment, the world's entertainment. It can be thought provoking. These guests can uh, not be living, but we can magically bring them back to life sort of thing. Okay. It's, it's whoever you want, literally anybody you want. I would like Taylor Swift. I'm a huge Swifty. <laughs> so just the opportunity <laughs> to, to hang out with Taylor Swift would be awesome. Is she your female guest or your musical person? Um, I think she's my female guest. Okay. I think I have all of my answers. All right, Sydney, who's your female guest? I, you know, I was wanna, caught up on Taylor Swift, so I need some time. Um, I think for my male guest, uh, we're going to resurrect someone from the past who has unfortunately left us, and I'm going to go with Steve Irwin. Um, Steve Irwin's TV show, The Crocodile Hunter, uh, and his like his passion and his compassion. Um definitely were a big part of what made me who I am today. So Steve Irwin, I'm going to go, we're going to throw back to earlier in the episode and I'm going to say Dolly Parton because mm -hmm. that lady, she just, she is such an unexpected <laughs> treasure. Uh, and you know, like Dolly Parton's music is fine. I it's, I like it. I like it, but I think more than that, I like her as a person. I think she's just an incredibly genuine kind person and we need more of that today. Uh, and then for my musical guest, I'm going to go with the band R.E.M. because I have lifelong yeah. <laughs> been an R.E.M. fan. And mm -hmm. if there is one person on earth that I could meet, if I could choose one person to meet, it would be Michael Stipe. Yeah, so you're, you're talking to an R.E.M. head. You, how, you weren't <laughs> born when R.E.M. came out, right? No, but I, I mean, Out of Time came out shortly before I was born and hot on the heels of that was uh, Automatic for the People and I'm just a diehard. I took a pilgrimage a few years ago to Athens, Georgia to like, I ate at Weaver D's and went to the steeple. I, I, there is no finer musical group in the world than REM. I saw REM uh, in concert in Williamsburg, Virginia when I was a junior in high school. It was the oh, best man. concert I've ever been to. It was amazing. I, wow. See, and there you go. They, they connect people. Oh, they're, they're awesome. Fantastic answer. <laughs> Anything I say is not going to beat that now. I, I'll, I'll, I'll be as excited no matter what you say, Allie. Your answers are just so thoughtful. All right, by, by, by the way, I'm, I'm going to buy you some more time, Allie. Okay. Uh, Dolly, Dolly Parton, you mentioned the word scrappy. She's also scrappy. She came from very, very humble beginnings. And that's what I love about her is, you know, Dolly knows exactly who she is. She figured it out and she did it on purpose and she doesn't care. I mean, like people can try to shame her and belittle her and she just has nothing but sass and kindness for them. And I just think she is a firecracker. If like, man, if there were a way for me to grow up to be Dolly Parton, that's what I'd do. But I can't be Dolly Parton. So I guess I'm going to be me. I, I, I can't see Dolly living in Haynes, Alaska. Neither can I, but you know, Dolly has Dollywood, and at Dollywood is the American Eagle Foundation, which no relation to us, but I do know a, a lot of their trainers, and um, you know, Dolly's passionate about bald eagles too. So maybe I have a connection there. Maybe I have an in. I'm gonna write Dolly I, a fan. I, I, <laughs> I mean, at the beginning, I thought you actually did know her, and maybe uh, eventually you will get to know her if you keep talking about her as much as you do. My fingers crossed. <laughs> Speak it into existence, <laughs> manifest it. All right, Allie, did we buy you enough time? I I mean, I have answers, but not it, anything close to what Sydney it's, said. It's not a comp. It's not a competition, Allie. <laughs> okay, it's so just meant to be revealing. Guest, my female guest would be Taylor Swift, and my male guest would be Nick Jonas. Nice, because I. You know, I'm a mid-20s female, and I love Nick Jonas. And then my musical guest would be One Direction, because, again, I am in my mid-20s, I am a female, and they're great. I think that that's really telling, though, because so uh, something we've been doing in the office a lot lately is crafting playlists. We are we're really trying to be intentional this year about keeping our energy up and having fun through the long, dark, cold winter. And Allie has been spearheading our office playlists, which are incredible. I think that's like, that's that seems spot on <laughs> for you. But by the way, Allie, this was not meant to be a competition. It was meant to be revealing about your personality. So it's, it's always all good. A competition. <laughs> it's 
towards the, the the end of 2021, you, you are a huge fan of Taylor Swift, Nick Jonas, and One Direction. Yeah, it's all good. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's close with uh, what can our listeners or, or just anybody do to uh, support your foundation? I imagine there's an obvious answer here, but there may be some not so obvious answers as well. The, the obvious answer, yeah, is to donate money. Uh, nonprofits are always asking for money, and we're not ever ashamed to say mm-hmm. we can always use more money. Mm-hmm. Uh, the money feeds the birds and feeds us also. There are multiple ways to do that. So our website is baldeagles.org, and we have a whole donation tab. Um, people have donated us money by giving it to us in their wills. Um, we have an Amazon wish list. So if you'd rather give us things than just a chunk of money, we are always filling our Amazon wish list with things for the birds, for the museum, just for our various projects that we have going around. Um, you can sponsor one of our raptors. Um, so that goes towards like helping feed them. Um, and depending on, we've done it through the size of the bird, there are different valued sponsorships. Um, and with that, you also get, you know, monthly updates to what that bird is up to, what their training is, and our newsletter. Um, and you can also just become a member of the foundation and you then will get, you know, a subscription to our newsletter, um, a jacket if you are a lifetime member, which is the biggest one, um, and some other cool things. But it's all listed out on our website, which can be found baldeagles.org or through our various social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, And I think that's the one that I like to emphasize because donations are wonderful and, you know, obviously we got to pay the bills, but we also really like to engage with people. So if people who have listened to this are interested in following us on social media and seeing what we're up to, that's what we, we really value being able to share what we do because it is special. Outstanding. Uh, guys, I really had a great time talking to you. I, I learned, I think almost everything you said, it was a, a learning for me. And th- those are the best kind cool, of uh, right? podcasts for me. Awesome. Well, it was, yeah, it was super fun. I'm really yeah. thrilled that Allie asked me to do this with her. <laughs> yeah, Allie couldn't wait to ask you, I think is my impression. Is that right, Allie? <laughs> it, it was really cool. It was a fun time. I couldn't not That's just a- keep this to myself. I had to share it. <laughs> Well, and yeah, I mean, when am I going to be able to talk to anybody living in Alaska, much less two people in Alaska, and then much less two people doing really cool things in Alaska? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.